Okay, we're good. So uh, if we could go around, and I know we have uh, Andy Rodriguez from Multicultural Communities for Mobility. Andy? Yes. Yes. And we have Adonia Lugo. And Adonia, you have a new job, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I just started as the Equity Initiative Manager at the League of American Bicyclists. That is perfect for today's conversation. And we have Kevin Main from the European <laughs> Foundation Federation. Hi. Sorry. And today we're talking about cycling as a human right. And who would like to start? Kevin, you it was your suggestion, I think, at one point. Yeah, it, it's a subject that's interesting us a lot of the moment um, because Though we're a European body, we kind of represent cycling at the United Nations and a number of other different bodies. And we're increasingly finding that the cycling, or should we just say mobility, as a, a fundamental human right and a, as a, an important both social and economic driver, or even more visible by its absence in the developing world, is a topic that lots of people want to talk about. Increasingly, there are money and global funds and other things that are attached to that process. Um, and we did a bit of work uh, one or two years ago around the United Nations um, Convention on Rights of the Child, which is more of a kind of Western discussion about children losing the right to be outdoors, the right to association, because the streets aren't good places for them to be. So quite excited by this kind of whole dimension and, and a need for some kind of different discussions wearing a slightly different hat at a totally practical level, for four to five years I ran a substantial program in the UK, which is closer to what you might call equality or equity, which was introducing cycling to communities that had been excluded, uh, not just from cycling, but they were excluded from other things in life where cycling could turn out to be useful, both young people and adults. So I had a lot of practical experience setting up programs, uh, women, disability, people with ethnic minorities, people with low incomes, prisoners, drug addicts, those kind of programs. And so just briefly, what does uh, cycling as a human right mean, like just definition in terms of, you know, is there a definition of what that means to you? Um, I, I think we're defining it in our global policy work as not so much cycling but mobility is a human right. And under the current work that's going on to redefine the Millennium Development Goals, I mean, in the past, people had things like sanitation and obviously health, education, right of association. There are a number of, but there are a number of things that development goals in particular that were about fundamental rights. And what's being realized is that all these things are fine, but if you can't get to them, then you are by definition excluded. And whether people are dying because a healthcare worker can't actually get to the village, whereas a bicycle could transform lives, is a very, mm -hmm. very basic, right down at deep human rights level. So we're talking about mobility as a human right, of which cycling is a really important component because of its accessibility. You don't need a machine in the sense of a combustion engine. Okay, thank you, Kevin Main from European Cyclist Federation. And now, uh, Adonia, you want to tell us where you're coming in? 
Yeah, sure. Um, well, I was very interested to hear uh, what Kevin was saying about the program in the UK that he worked on, and I'm going to uh, ask him for more information about that later because uh, it ties in with uh, what I have been starting to work on here at the League. Um, basically, at the beginning of this year, uh, they started thinking about how to uh, make sure that as an organization that uh, whose mission is to represent all bicyclists in the U.S., that, um, that they were expanding their reach to, to bring in more populations than um, people who self-identify as cyclists or people who um, have traditionally been seen as cyclists. And so uh, they started up this equity initiative and uh, formed a panel of experts uh, called the Equity Advisory Council that are uh, advocates around the country uh, who have done work with uh, women and communities of color and youth and could speak to the needs for outreach uh, to those uh, populations. Uh, and uh, so now I have stepped into this new position that was created uh, being the equity initiative manager. And uh, I'm just getting my bearings on figuring out uh, how to kind of connect the many different threads that would uh, that fall under the term equity, um, which is a term that people are using now to talk about um, social equity issues. So if you're going to try and have equitable outcomes where uh, there's a diverse range of uh, communities and populations that are served by a public program or or, uh, or infrastructure uh, or something like that. Then, uh, then you need to ensure that at the front end you're engaging with those same um, diverse populations. So, uh, what what I have been working on is kind of my first step is just gathering information about different uh, programs that are uh, doing outreach with uh, different kinds of cyclists around the country. Uh, for example, what Andy's working on in LA with Multicultural Communities for Mobility, which is an organization I have some old ties with, and um, I'd love to hear hear his update on, on what their work is uh, about right now. Yeah, well, Andy? Yeah, um, and... Uh, it's it's uh, very interesting just to listen to the to the term um, human right and equity and, and I think they they both tie in uh, into the work that that we're doing here in Los Angeles. Um, so very um, quickly, um, MCM uh, uh, mission is to advocate for safe alternative transportation access in uh, underserved communities of color within Greater Los Angeles. Uh, we've been doing this work for about five years. Uh, here in Los Angeles, and, and pretty much the premise or spark that got us to wanting to do more uh, bike work and bike safety was was uh, we had been seeing a lot of cyclists um, out in, uh, at night uh, uh, without lights. And upon further investigation, uh, we uh, identified a huge uh, issue within the low-income community, especially Latino community, of people riding out of necessity and not necessarily uh, knowing what their rights um, and uh, safety laws are uh, and uh, police officers um, coming in and uh, harassing them, uh, unjustly uh, ticketing them. And so we started this whole campaign to educate um, folks in the community um, and to listen to the stories of, of why they ride their bike and, and why it's an important facet of their lifestyle. And upon further investigation, um, we find that most of the people are not riding because they want to 
write out of recreation. They're really writing because of a necessity. Um, it is, it is uh, a, a very uh, um, tied in lifestyle to the work that they do and the wages that they get. And so as a way to get around and to look for work, uh, most of these people are actually writing um, in the city, uh, uh, actually from city to city, from LA to Long Beach, from uh, El Monte to a, you know West Covina, and so uh, very transient population. And um, our work has primarily been to not only target these communities, but to empower them through through uh, um, policy um, advocating. Uh, to getting them to know more about, um, you know, how do you prevent, um, you know, other cyclists from, from being unjustly ticketed? Um, how do you uh, continue the education uh, within and even above uh, the work that we're already doing? So how do we get other people to start teaching other people about their rights um, when they're on the street, and most of the the cyclists that that, that we teach are are coming from different countries, uh, especially in Latin America, Mexico, um, El Salvador, um, Honduras, and so um, the the work that 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 we're doing uh, is especially benefiting a lot of the people that um, that that you know are out there uh, writing and there's a lot of powerful stories that you hear about uh you know about you know what they see on the street and how they would like to be treated on the street because they're often not treated with respect uh when they actually ride their bike uh and so um yeah it's, it's been 5 years in the making and we're continuing to do some some great work out there in terms of educating um giving helmets and lights and and uh, uh, talking about some of the experiences by which people are going through and really uh, trying to find solutions within the community so that uh, we can become a better and more unified uh, cycling movement. Yeah, and I'm, I'm, I keep hearing about all this, the good stuff you're doing. And so now that we've introduced ourselves, um, maybe you all can talk to each other, ask questions if anybody has any, or compare what you're doing any any questions by any of the uh, of you for for any of the others of you I think uh well one thing that's on my mind uh cuz I was just looking at some stuff about an uh e-bike electric bike ban um in at least one part of uh New York City I think it might just be Manhattan I'm not sure if it's all all the boroughs but uh, there was a, a protest organized yesterday by um, delivery workers who use e-bikes um, to to deliver food um, from restaurants and uh, a group of, of Chinese workers who got together to protest the ban because obviously they're pretty adversely affected by that. And um, and it kind of, to me, spoke to this, this issue of um, if we think of cycling or mobility as a human right, then uh, it, sometimes it's not it's not easy to, to figure out the right kinds of policies that can apply to um, an entire city or, or, um, or how, do you, how do you accommodate the fact that people are using uh, well, different kinds of bikes but also um, different populations using those bikes and how they um, may have different uh, needs and concerns. So how do you then kind of address that as, at a policy level how do we take those different um, interests into account? That's one question I have. 
That's kind of you a said, really interesting one in terms of the wider storytelling. And I think it's, um, I learned, I mean, as you do in all these things, you, you think you know a little bit, and then someone from the communities or the world or the countries you're supporting comes and really kind of tells you like it is. And we've had some very powerful speakers at our Velo City conferences from Asia and Africa and other places. And I think the most powerful ones this last year we were there were two different speakers, both women, one from Africa, one from, from India, Set, without any prompting, turned up in separate sessions and said, you people in the developed world need to stop calling cycling a choice. You know, it, it is a matter of economic life and death to many communities we work with. So you know, if, if you run a rickshaw in certain, certain cities in India, you could be the sole breadwinner for a large family. If you are doing deliveries of food, just what you described, that's actually a proper job. You know, it's part of the economic lifeblood of the city. It's not something you do as we might perceive in the kind of Western world because it's a poor job or because you're an economic migrant or because you're some teenager that needs some, some part-time money. This is a real job and a real living and a real family keeps people employed. And poor policymaking that decides to drive that off the street or decides that the pedal-driven fast food sellers are untidy and the current mayor doesn't like the look it has for his city or he's got you know he's just won the olympics or something that devastates entire families and entire incomes and and we have to make that separation and i was really interested in andy's point about you know people are cycling for economic necessity people cycling for economic necessity in much of the west and certainly much of europe is is a smaller and smaller part of life it might have been true 20 30 years ago but now policymakers don't have to think that way. They think of transport choices being available to everybody so they can offer metro or they can offer bus or they can offer car or they can offer bicycle. And bicycle sits then in the kind of inner marketplace. And just this kind of reminder that underneath in certain community societies, in certain social structures, mobility is not affordable um, or mobility is part of the economic model in terms of cycling, cycling, recycling businesses, is constantly getting lost. It's just not recognized um, by people because the people making the policies are people for whom transport choices are transport choices. They can walk out of the house in the morning and make the decision how they get to the office. And I think part of that yeah. conversation as well um, is, is how do we, um, as a community, really um, uh, embellish uh, powerful stories like that and how do we communicate that to other people? Um, because here in Los Angeles, um, there, are, there are powerful stories by which uh, you hear on a, on a day-to-day basis uh, of, of why people ride their bike and, and how that's really helping out their family. Uh, and because of, 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 of them using their bike to actually get around, it allows them to actually provide for their family. I, I, I'm currently working with 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 a uh, a young uh, a man uh, who's been riding his bike for uh, 20 years. Uh, he is coming from Guatemala, and he used his bike as as a way to get around. Um, that was the only way that he he could in fact get around. And when he comes here to California um, and locates himself here in Los Angeles, um, he finds himself. Um, uh, Lost in terms of, of, of what are some of the laws and, and rights that that that, that he has, and compared to motorists, 
And um, and he tells me, he says, Andy, if it wasn't for this bike, I don't know where I would be right now. Um, this this is literally what what takes me from place to place. It is what provides for my family right now. And, um, and he says, well, I, I really can't afford um, a bus pass right now because of my economic situation. And it seems like there are a lot of people out there that are living uh, on the trenches of, of of extreme poverty, and and the vehicle by which they get around is is, is a bicycle. I mean, you know, it's it's uh, fairly easy to to um, to obtain. Uh, maintenance costs are are, are quite low. Um, in fact, it's it, it, it's a skill for which you can learn, uh, and most of these guys um, um, have learned. Um, and how do we tell uh, these stories? Um, to the rest of the people, to the rest of the world, that while uh, we may have uh, policy uh, infrastructure plans, that there are stories that also rise up um, so that people may know about um, the different variety of, of, of stories and experiences that which help to make this policy uh, much more stronger and much more reflective of not just a group, but uh, a, 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 you know, different populations for which actually ride their bike. Well, I'm quite keen to tell economic stories. And we talked in a previous edition of Global Bike Talk about bikeonomics. And because bikeonomics sells politically, you can kind of love it or hate it, but one of the major reasons the advocacy communities moved down that route is because you know, basically most politicians are economically driven. Uh, they may not be very good at it, some of them, but they have to believe they're changing the economies of their city and of their populations and of their workforces. So, but telling one man's individual story doesn't always do it, but telling, you know, a community's economic story, or did you know that bicycling supplies, you know, X percent of the workforce of the city or could provide it, um, it does push us down a different channel, but very often in doing that, we tend very deliberately to blow up the importance of the kind of middle-class economics because those people are politically important and politically influential and politically journalists, and they make mayors and others feel important. But however you cut it, um, that link between cycling and economics from the very grassroots individual man from Guatemala, but what we have to be able to do is collectivize your experience so that it actually means something in the context of the whole of L.A. Just how many people are there like that whose economic activity depends on a bicycle? Because when you actually follow that through, that's going to be worth millions to the economy of that city. Uh, unfortunately, the ones don't do it. We, we have to extrapolate that story to make it meaningful. Well, speaking to the to the the bikeonomics side of it, um, one one area that I've uh, discussed with Ellie Blue, who couldn't be on the call, but um, recently published a book under that title. Um, we we've talked about the the issue of um, economy being somewhat left undefined, and how if we want to use uh, bicycling as an economic development tool, we can do that. Um, very strategically at a local scale. And uh, what's going to be cool uh, in the future, I think, is seeing more 
like advocates and organizations work on figuring out what that looks like. And um, one example is the Community Cycling Center in Portland um, has been working for a few years on some different projects to basically what they're trying to do is develop community-based programs that promote bicycling and support people using bicycles, but seeing the bicycle as part of a larger framework and seeing um, mobility at the neighborhood scale as part of this larger economic system um, that people's livelihoods are hooked into. Uh, so I think that that's definitely um, part of that uh, selling the, 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 the business benefits of bicycling and, and all that is, is keeping the local scale in mind as well. Adonia, do you have interaction with people in government or you know places of power where you have to make these arguments yet? Well, the uh, not me yet, but the league uh, has certainly been working on that uh, for some time. Uh, the theme, actually, of the the National Bike Summit this year was bikes mean business, and I know that um, as Kevin was saying, this is this is a, a very current and um, politically salient. Uh, argument that advocates are making um, that that bicycling can can help improve local economies and and city boost cities and and I think that really uh, ties into the rise of interest we're seeing around the U.S. Uh, by different mayors who have this kind of competition going on um, over who can who can make their city the most bike friendly and mm -hmm. um, you know I I did my uh, my dissertation research in Los Angeles um, and got to witness that transition there where uh, Mayor Villaraigosa got behind um, the Ciclovia effort that we were organizing and took it on as a city project. And so now, yeah, I think he's a pretty good example of um, how uh, political leadership in the U.S. is, is starting to, to make some connections between promoting bicycling, promoting healthy transportation, and, um, and other, other ways of improving the city. Hasn't this been a particularly strong year if we move back to kind of equality or equity for for the league and others in the promotion of um, kind of gender issues within cycling? I've, I've been just kind of following at an arm's length a lot of good work earlier this year on cycling for women, you know, women as cycling leaders and that kind of work, which I was quite impressed by. Yeah, yeah. Another another project that the league has going is um, Women Bike and. Uh, Bringing together different women advocates and and focusing on um, how to how to design promotion uh, programs and and really just kind of covering all the bases of um, of advocacy uh, on how to how to connect better with um, women who use bikes and that I mean that's been a very exciting thing to to witness and be part of Carolyn Shapansky who's the director of communications here at the league. Um, has has been the driving force behind that, and um, they're having um, uh, their third uh, National Women's Bicycling Forum this coming March as part of the National Bike Summit that the league puts on every year here in D.C. So I'm uh, I'm hoping we can, uh, with the Equity Initiative here, kind of follow the the momentum and enthusiasm that we've seen around women bike build on that. It's kind of interesting because you you almost describe them as separate initiatives. Where from where I've been coming from in past years, the the two are almost inseparable. Well, they are inseparable. Oh, I totally agree. That's me speaking more as an organizational structure nerd. <laughs> <laughs> 
with within the organization these are these are uh allied but separate programs but certainly uh representing women is is part of what the equity initiative is doing so they're they're very much um of a piece and we're working in tandem yeah we certainly that i mean there's a lot of evidence in Europe, and obviously we have countries where, like the Netherlands and others, where there is more cycling, so you have a much bigger test bed to kind of come from. Where, uh, um, and, and people have reacted against the statement, but basically, if you can see women cycling, it suggests that your cycling infrastructure and your cycling community is actually making progress. Because whether we like it or not, there are various fear issues and childcare issues and peer pressure issues, which mean dangerous cycling infrastructures. Women are discouraged from using it. So we actually this is now in the situation in the Netherlands where more women cycle than men for transport journeys. Um, and there's some very interesting stuff following through that in various countries to kind of why that might be. And actually, a lot of it's due to the fact that women's daily journeys, maybe involving childcare, are more suited to cycling. They're sometimes shorter, they're more neighborhood, they're more multi-trip, they're more multi-destination. Um, man takes car to work in the morning, returns in evening with car, is is leaving sort of other choices that are needed by the other member of the household. And it, it is a stereotype and it is a cliche, but you know, it, the reality on the ground is when you measure it, that turns out to be true. And in countries like Spain and others, we see that you know, women are vastly larger consumers of public transport because in, in slightly more patriarchal societies, if there is a car, man takes it. Um, leaving other choices, so the the whole sense of getting um, the, the kind of number of quality and getting cycling moving agenda by being able to measure what proportion of the people on the streets are women as an indicator of is our cycling policy working is, is quite a powerful tool. Andy, do you, do your does MCM use data? Uh, do, do you rely and do you collect it about who's cycling yeah, on the streets? We we often rely on, on on data and information that that comes out either from the LA County Bike Coalition or just numbers that we get from different articles. Um, but in terms of just um, uh, the topic of um, having and encouraging more women to ride bikes, I think it's it's an interesting um, uh, thing to pursue, especially here for MCM because we've. Um, we've been advocating for bicycling for such a long time, and I think we've done it very successfully. And that's um, primarily through the works of 7th Street Bike Lane here in the city, um, where we uh, took a, a, a group of, of day labor cyclists and we've got them together. And uh, they pretty much identify a, 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 a lane by which had not been identified in the, in the, in the bike lane, uh, bike master plan, sorry, and we advocated for it and became uh, a, a well-recognized and well-used uh, um, um, bike lane here in the city. Um, and it's very interesting because when, when I um, talk to other women about bicycling, it's usually uh, about the fact that there's not that much infrastructure, that they uh, fear um, actually riding um, between parked vehicles and, and traffic. Uh, and, and so um, our work... Um, should and, and will uh, be to encompass not just low-income bicyclists but also women and encouraging them because for us it's, it's an indicator that, that the policy is actually working because it's in, including uh, and being reflective of the needs not just of men but also of women and, uh, and, 
and and so uh but it's primarily the the, the things that that I'm listening to is the fact that while infrastructure is growing here in the city um we are still lagging in terms of having more women on bicycles uh more men are 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 actually riding bicycles than than our women and so how do we how do we encourage more bicycling, and and I personally feel that there's a lot of factors, but I think one of the main factors is infrastructure. And if we do that right, and if we tell the story right in terms of not only the micro experience but the macro experience, then I think you know I I think we can um, definitely have more uh, success in that field, and I think you know we can have a more livable and bikeable community here in Los Angeles. Well, I would, uh, I guess, adding to the the gender discussion um, and speaking as an anthropologist, one thing that I've uh, witnessed through uh, participating in in the bike movement and also being a bike commuter myself um, for many years is the, it ties into the infrastructure question too, because being a a cyclist, uh, oftentimes if you're riding in a situation where there isn't a lot of dedicated infrastructure or even if there is and, and people are, are still just kind of uh, crossing paths quite a bit, you, you have to assert quite a bit of uh, personal uh, right over the space that you're traveling through. You right. have to be um, right. maybe a little aggressive, and, um, and that can be really fun, but it can also um, be a barrier for – uh, people who have been socialized to not be super aggressive, which uh, tends to characterize the way that women get socialized. So there's, I think that there's something there. Uh, maybe that could be one of the reasons why you would see more women biking if there's more infrastructure in place, because that, having the infrastructure would seem to require less of a, a personal, you know, staking a claim to that road space. Um, but there are other other factors um, that I think are also interesting, and again, Ellie's coming to my mind because she writes about um, women and bike issues very extensively, and she's commented on the fact that um, in in the U.S. we have a kind of, uh, I don't know, opposite effect where because women are responsible for, um, more responsible for child care and uh, elder care and household errands and things like that, they do sometimes feel more tied to the car. Um, and needing to to be able to run errands in a car and, and tote children and soccer balls or whatever um, all around town. And so it's uh, it's been really cool to see, um, especially in the Pacific Northwest in the U.S., but all over the place, the development of more family biking um, networks and communities and um, people who really are, are working to support each other, being able to bike with kids um, and they've gotten uh, a fair amount of media attention, too. I know there's a woman in Portland who's been on Oprah because she bikes everywhere with her uh, little brood. I think it's kind of interesting is the reversal where, you know, Northern Europe, less so. That, I mean, Europe isn't universal, but obviously the Netherlands, Danish, German, Scandinavian model where, and partly driven by parking and travel restrictions, if someone actually said, it is more convenient to move my children around by car would just be laughed out of the room where the kind of cargo bike, multiple children on bikes, because the cities and the parking and the regimes and the street speeds and these kind of sports clubs or wherever it may be with the soccer balls, the idea you'd be able to drive around them efficiently when they are all a short bicycling distance 
has become you know absolutely apparent that it, that it is bicycling that's going to enable you to do this, and that is that transition. Whereas, say, to the Netherlands is now kind of 51, 52 percent women cycling, for exactly the reverse dynamic to to what Ellie's describing with women making choices and feel wedded to the car. In, in that's a Donia. Yeah, so don't you... driving Ellie's work, sorry, in uh, in, uh, uh, in or Ellie's writing. Oh, oh, you're right. Okay, it was Ellie. Okay. <laughs> Somebody's probably said it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, well, I, I think that that's uh, yeah. The the difference there, of course, is that in the U.S. it's still um, fairly cheap to to own a car and drive because we have such different price structures for our yeah. gasoline and you know our our <clears throat> so many of our communities have been designed around um driving and you know for generations we have been just really geared toward driving and so i think that's part of the part of the hangover we're seeing where there's a, a perceived um or very real need to be able to drive simply because people have chosen to live in places where um they they just driving is 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 just an afterthought. It's just going to be the way that they get around, and so it's a, a right. challenge for the bike movement to to try and bring more awareness around those things and identify you know when people are making those sorts of lifestyle choices. You know, <laughs> transportation being a very important factor in there. Right, right. It's kind I of would, interesting. Would, Sorry, go. On. Yeah, yeah. I would I would totally agree with that. For example, you've got um, several um, suburban cities here um, in the county of Los Angeles, for example, Downey, uh, Covina, where um, it was about two months ago, I was uh, actually went into Downey. I had never uh, been there. And the way you get around, um, there actually isn't any sidewalk. Um, there's just a bunch of front yards, and you have to walk over them. And the only infrastructure provided there is for, for vehicles. Um, but on a larger scale, that's that's the way we have some suburban cities uh, where um, it's to accommodate more, more for vehicles than for any other mode. Um, and that's been sort of the trend uh, and the sentiment by which uh, people experience other cities. And and that that's a challenge. I mean, how do we get people from other cities, especially coming into Metro Los Angeles, to um, take alternative transportation because their their transportation in their cities uh, either lack in service, um, um, the the service is not frequent, and um, and perhaps there isn't any money to fund um, more uh, service times for for people who are um, coming from. 15, 20 miles away that work into LA, and that's the the, the issue is the, the congestion, and and really um, trying to um, challenge different cities to come up with their master plans, and making that a a part of not just a city but a part of a, a wider scale uh, effort to try and get other cities to develop like master plans. Yeah, I mean certainly if you're starting to talk people where the economy or the workforce or the city layout and obviously you have a particular US infrastructure where you know you are talking 20 mile trips then it, it's only really the electric bike that is beginning to intrude into that kind of trip choice or it's public transport 
you know, the, the, the Netherlands, very interestingly, I mean, they believe they've kind of cracked the under five mile trips and cycling takes its share. But their cities are built with a, very much a lot of satellites that they developed and, and towns they built, which if you cycle within the town, you bicycle, fine, your cars are kept out of the city. But if you work in the next place, which is 15, 20 miles away, you, you kind of feel you have no choice, maybe rail, but certainly car. And the e-bike is now offering the opportunity to offer cycling to link those two places. So you still get to work feeling like you want to work. Um, you don't have special clothing, you know, special protection. And that, that's opening up a whole new dimension on, on that kind of interurban journey in a European context or within a bigger city, bigger metropolis, if, it, if, it's, uh, if it's there. Um, but most of the discussion up until the kind of arrival of the e-bike has been all about the kind of five-mile trip uh, not and the very local neighborhood trip, uh, not, not the middle distance. The middle distance has been the domain of public transport. Can I pick up okay. your point about the streets without sidewalks? Um, yeah, yeah, sure. Because it's really interesting, because we, we started some of our human rights work at the kind of global level um, two years ago when we were in Vancouver, and we did a thing called the Charter of Vancouver with the city as a result of a conference we did there. And that was actually themed around children. And there's an awful lot of work been done not so much in cycling, but in um, children's psychology, children's health, the role of play, the role of streets, the role of mobility, both academically and practically, which is showing how effectively, particularly cars, but also a little bit of stranger danger and other fears, are driving children off the streets in the developed world. Um, now, that's causing both a crisis of obesity but it's actually beginning to emerge that it's having strongly detrimental effects in mental health, in um, kind of various other factors in, in the children's ability to associate well and education and these kind of things. And they're all very reasonable decisions parents are making, which is, I'm not happy with my child being on that street. So... Interestingly, a lot of the Europeans is reacting is if you have a street without sidewalks, it's because the whole street space is one big sidewalk. You either exclude cars or you have such slow speed limits and you have engineering to protect them. But um, in this human rights context, we have a really interesting discussion emerging about the kind of human rights of the child to effectively to be allowed to go outside, to explore their neighbourhood, to travel, to move about, to meet their friends. Uh, and cycling is only one of the parts of that, but you know the idea that every kid gets a bike and every kid can play on their bike outside the backyard is one of the big kind of human rights stories that is emerging in child psychology and child development and child mobility. And we've got a lot of new allies as a bike advocacy movement in that kind of community who are really, really worried about the long-term trends in society um, linked to and, you know, things effectively the fundamental rights of children to grow up. And uh, adding to that, um, focus on on uh, the need to consider children and, and childhood obesity and those issues, um, 
that's uh, the position that I'm in at the league is funded by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, which is the, the U.S.'s biggest uh, public health funder, and it has been their mission for some time to, to be addressing these issues. And so that's definitely a link that um, we're trying to make between the work of bike advocacy and, um, and Im impacting um, healthy lifestyle choices. Uh, at the family level, and I think also the a major theme for me in in looking at this kind of human rights as a mobility or I'm sorry mobility as a human rights um, issue is is how we are building more of a network with um, allied uh, groups and allied issues. And um, here in DC, there's now a, a transportation equity caucus that has uh, uh, dozens of groups that are working together to shape transportation policy, uh, specifically uh, in collaboration around, you know, not just biking, not just transit, not just walking, but all of these things together and how they fit into um, a, a whole spectrum of mobility. And um, I think that that's definitely a, a good move for the bike movement to be seen where we, where we fit into a larger picture. So it's, it seems like there's so many different uh, threads of uh, ways of, of looking at, at biking, and there's different arguments. And do they all come together into like the, the human rights, and then there's other, um, you know, the economics and the business, and then where does it all come together? And it seems like the, the argument is just getting stronger. So how does it all like look at to, when it in the, um, I mean, is, is there like a grand unified theory of uh, <laughs> of arguments for for bikes? Grand unified or, theory. God, you take me back to my education in physics. <laughs> um, I, looking across, I mean, we we try and bring you know a thousand delegates a year together to talk about cycling and talk about the big stories. I mean, each year one can layer on a new argument, you know, and we've certainly had a trend on economics. For a number of years, you know, we've had a trend on e on infrastructure. We certainly had a trend now on human rights, and I think we're exploring it. We haven't yet got, if you like, the human rights argument structured in such a form that you can kind of put it in front of a city official and say, "Pay for this." So there there is some way to go. I think that may even come more at some of the global institutions where you can say, "Pay for this. It works." Um, I think the reverse is true in that. What the bike advocacy movement is getting more sophisticated is saying, and I think it's where Donia is, is if I'm sat in front of a funder who wants to fund public health, do I have a set of arguments that work? If I'm sitting in front of an elected official who believes that they were elected to improve the economic opportunities of the people that appointed them, then do I have a set of arguments that I can use? If I have a commissioner of police who is not really quite sure why his police should stop ticketing you know, Latin, Latin, people of Latin American origin, have I got a set of arguments about what this is delivering? And it, it's much more at the moment like a toolkit because we, we've moved advocacy out of this very narrow ghetto of just talking to highway engineers who were educated in the 1960s. And we shouted at them for 30 years and, and not a lot happened. And, and now a much more sophisticated bicycle advocacy movement is emerging that is actually targeting politicians, targeting economic arguments, targeting companies, 
and I'm really excited by that. Um, part of the work I do is to educate advocates in what might work. And it's really great when you see someone suddenly think, hang on, I know a politician that's interested in, in human rights or in gender. I think I can take this argument to them. I think I can take this case study to them because they're going to be interested. Um, so I, I think we're almost doing the reverse of a grand unified theory. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, I wish I had uh, one. If I had one, uh, that'd be quite interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, uh, um, I was going to say that it, it, it's interesting in terms of yeah, because in terms of where does it all come together? Um, uh, I think it comes together at, at forums. I think it comes together at, at bike advocacy meetings. I think it comes together um, in places for which you know people have a space where they can they can talk about um, advocacy and they can talk about safety and they can talk about um, the, you know the next trip. Um, and primarily, um, uh, these discussions should be um, and that's what we're encouraging more people to participate more in the public policy process. Um, because what we're seeing now is that there are a lot of cyclists here in, here in the city, but are not necessarily um, in the public um, policy process. Uh, there are very few people that are involved, and so um, I think generating more support towards going to those places and really understanding um, that this this place is where um, we get to have a say and we get to be able to tell delegates and policymakers where um, bike lanes and bike infrastructure should go. Um, because, yeah, you will hear about the economics. You, you will hear about um, the low-income person who rode for and continues to ride for, for, um, uh, until today. And you will hear about parklets and you will hear about all these things um, and we're hearing it. Um, and so how do we bring that to a table um, where policymakers and everybody can get together? That's what the B-Pit here um, in the city, which is the bike plan implementation team, which gathers uh, interagencies such as Public Works and, and um, uh, LADOT and other agencies and community to really discuss and better manage bike infrastructure uh, and the vision for the next year, next two years. Um, but often those, those, those uh, meetings are not being packed. Um, they're, they're being packed by, um, by a, a certain uh, group, and we need other people to, um, from different backgrounds, uh, from different um, um, experiences to, to come together. Um, and I'm seeing a lot of youth. Uh, for which are going to critical mass and and they're doing all these great rides, but I would love to see um, you know more people involved in the public policy process, and that's where our work really comes in. How do we attract people um, to organizations for which can better um, uh, sort of navigate uh, and and teach people what the processes? How can we um, give them? Uh, pointers by which they can empower themselves and empower the community and bring that to the platform um, for which um, it's really going to dictate what the next one, two, or even five years of the LA bike plan, where that's going to go and where the infrastructure is going to go and where the need is. So um, 
most definitely there's a lot of trends out there, but you know, just getting people to a place by which they can they can talk about that with other public policymakers, I think it's the important key thing. And figuring that out, I think, will be um, you know um, the task to you know that that everybody's working on, and how do we get other people to work on that as well? Can I ask? I mean, the question that I mean, the, the presumption is that if you like, they've got to come to us or we've got to bring them to us. With your work in, say, the Latino community, yeah, is there yeah. not another strategy which is, or do you even get the invitations, which is, you know, wherever the political forums are that represent that community, you're kind of sneaking, cycling into that discussion and having it, you know, having a demand for it because the minute you have a meeting about cycling, it is self-selecting. You know, all the things you describe, whether you're young or you're not engaged or they might all be radicals or they might be this, whatever it is, it's it's an exclusive environment um, as opposed to, you know, in, in, a, in a particular environment. People tend to say, one of the things that really worked for me was this cycling. Can we not all advocate for it, but, but placing it in a different place? So do you go I, to I, other... I, yes. Yes, yes, I, I, I totally agree on that. I mean, when I talk to people and I say, uh, there's the LA Bike Master Plan, everyone's like, wait, what? What, uh, what is that? Um, and, and I have to go in detail in terms of what that is. Um, but it was passed several years ago. And so because of the structure, the way by which people have to go to a specific location, to a specific time, um, it's really hard for a lot of people to get, get there because of their sort of um, working conditions uh, in terms of whether they can get out or not. Um, and and so what we did uh, at the time, City of Lights, which is a project of LA County Bike Coalition, um, what we did, we actually took the meeting to the people um, because the city um, hadn't yet reached uh, a, a full, um, full-on outreach program. And so we told the city, well, um, we would love to do outreach for you. So we would take the meeting onto the people. For example, we, we, we took it to a group of, of, of young students at the LA Conservation Court uh, here in South Los Angeles. And we took it elsewhere as well. We took it to churches. We took it to community groups. So that um, and, and, and the times at which we, we, we took it, um, uh, the meetings was at around 7 p.m., uh, 6 8 p.m. Um, so that um, they could have a chance and a voice. And what we would do, we would gather the feedback and we would take it back um, to where the B-Pits were, were uh, um, being uh, um, held. And so um, that was a strategy that, that we used. Um, uh, but again, you know, uh, having physical people is always a great thing. And um, getting more people like that, um, it, it's, it's definitely a plus. And, and, and so, um, and then the strategy that, that we devised definitely worked. Um, but how do we get other people to sort of do that model? And that's the model that we've been promoting because a lot of people can get to a 1 o'clock meeting, 2 o'clock meeting during the, 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 the work week. Uh, so that's something we've got to, um, you know, identify and find a solution for. And so this model works very perfectly in, in really addressing that issue um, um, partially. But, again, we need we need people uh, who can physically be there so that there's a stronger voice uh, during these meetings. I was thinking, I mean, 
The example I would use is in our outreach programs in the UK, one of the most exciting periods was we did, one of my team did some work inside um, a Hindu temple, a Hindu community uh, based around the temple. Um, and the first thing that was kind of the uh, women were cycling was effectively looked down about something you didn't do in their community. But some of the younger mothers said they wanted to cycle with their children. The children had been learning cycling. They'd been taught cycling at school. They wanted to cycle in the park. Um, so we facilitated that with lessons and bicycles and trips. And you know, and six months later, we've got a whole community of mums uh, from the Hindu community who cycle, organising their own rides. What then happened was not anything to do with us, is that they became an advocacy voice for that part of their city, but also, interestingly, within their own community. So they were saying to the community elders, that the community, you know, what is it we're going to do this year? What projects are we going to do? They're saying, we want to do more of this. We want, to, we want more mums to experience this. We want more of our community to do this. This is really, really special. And, and effectively, they had absorbed what it is we did. So we didn't need to take their story anywhere. They were taking it themselves. And we had similar very powerful experiences with, with teenagers who were brought into various programs, doing things, organizing a BMX club. And in you know, in the first six months of the project, everybody in the neighborhood hates the kids on the BMX bikes because they're vandals, they're probably on drugs, they play loud music. And then a few months later, these kids have restored a public park. Everybody wants them, but they've become their own advocates. Now, we're not able under kind of community funding to sustain those clubs just because we, the benevolent cyclists, have got that going. They've got to stand up and go forward. But we had some really exciting new advocacy by those people leading inside their own communities. So inside the youth work sector, there were people saying, bicycling's become an important part of our lives. What's the city going to do about it? What are we going to do about it? What are we going to do to keep this part going? And that's very different from trying to kind of effectively suck those people into our world. It's, um, it's, I've, I've heard, um, you know The Matrix, the movie, where uh, yep. Neo uh, infects the agents? Reminds me of that a little bit, but but not what you were saying, but a different thing. Like if you can if you can take the the mainstream culture and just sort of you know insert your your DNA, your your cycling DNA. I'll back out now. You guys can talk. Well, I think that yeah, uh, I, mean, I, I don't think I don't think you're incorrect about that. <laughs> There's a the um, I I've been kind of working on trying to figure out how uh, to, to do more of this crossover between grassroots community stuff and people who are using bikes but aren't organized around that and formal advocacy. So how do you, how do you set up these relationships, right? And um, I think MCM is a, is a really good example of the kind of human infrastructure that we need to really connect those different, um, different areas. Because it's actually it's kind of, kind of, surprising when you look at the bike movement, how much of a disconnect there can be, not just between um, overlooked populations who use bikes, but the, the bike collective world, um, all these different urban bike subcultures that exist, 
they're not necessarily um, that connected with with advocacy and policy. Um, so it's so it's a it, I, I see working with um, with uh, communities of color and and other marginalized groups as just being part of that larger question. How do how do we connect that grassroots energy around bicycling with our our policy and advocacy work? I'm yeah, and and and, and uh, uh, an interesting approach to to the way that we've been sort of looking at it. We're looking at more of a sort of community organizer or uh, in the community that, rep that represents and brings people together um, and provides that person either a job or uh, other people under that person several jobs because th this is a, a big um, uh, undertaking here in the city because the city is, 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 is huge. Um, and how do we get people with uh, a background in community organizing uh, to try and get other people involved, uh, and that's partially what we did several years ago, uh, in terms of uh, our collective efforts with the people that we're working with, um, especially their laborers. Uh, we played that role, um, but how do we get a position or several positions that that could continue the fluidity of that spirit um, uh, of 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 of, um, of a community organizing mentality that can uh, get people together and get them to advocate, get them to start um, doing these bike rides that are not just, you know, rides that we're just going to ride just to ride, I mean, but talk about a ride that can impact people, a ride that is themed around all the deaths that are happening here in the city and why there's a lar larger issue of safety and educating motorists and, and making sure that they're more responsible, not texting while driving. Um, and those are the things that I think that, that are happening, but there isn't uh, a specific uh, go-to person that um, we can, we can uh, go to uh, and organize around um, because the way, and this is the reason why I personally got involved and upon learning about people's stories and safety and all that stuff, what's very interesting is that um, here in the state of California, we are educating more motors than we are cyclists, but yet we ticket them the same. And the way that the state uh, pretty much devised uh, th this uh, sort of plan was that it would be up to cities uh, to, to, you know, it would be their undertaking if they wanted to pursue educational efforts, and it's happening, but it's not happening consistently. It's happening sparingly throughout the city, um, and a lot of people... Uh, uh, are writing uh, and have been writing for such a long time, several years, and have yet to even know what what uh, safety basic safety rules are, such as wearing helmets, uh, how to ride properly, how uh, you know in the bike lane and and uh, riding uh, the wrong uh, side of the traffic lane, uh, basic things like that, which which are, are really uh, important and essential. How do we get um, going back to the community organizing? How do we get someone who, who from the community that is very well connected, uh, knows people, uh, is great with, with uh, relationships, who can tell a great story, knows the political structure? How can we get a, uh, several people like that? How can we empower other people in order to become that um, here and, and build a, a bigger movement 
it, it's already there. We just haven't uh, tied up the, the loose ends, and, and that's what we need. We need more community organizers here in the city and elsewhere um, to be able to uh, uh, succinctly and, and uh, strategically target people and have them advocate not only for the, uh, themselves but for other people in the community. And so um, I think that's a very interesting um, yeah. discussion. One, I mean, we could take that off for another hour because, I, I mean, effectively, <laughs> as I mentioned at the very beginning, that was the program. We, but we ran a program that had that model, and, and we called it Champions. And, and the people you're describing, we called them Champions because they were the ones who were going to champion cycling. But what's really interesting and I think different, is that none of those champions was required to know anything about cycling or even particularly to kind of have a bent towards cycling because they were <coughs> embedded in, as community leaders or figureheads or else in the community we were that might benefit from cycling. Uh, what we found with the champions is they understood what cycling could do for their community. It can empower their young people. It could help their mothers, you know, ride with their children. It could make people healthier. It could help drug addicts and mental health problems. So that the champion was someone who kind of understood this is a good thing. Um, frankly, if, if something else had come along, soccer, walking, health, drug, that did the same job, they could move on. But I, the key point was to expose if you do this regularly and often, People enjoy it, it's powerful, it works, it's cost-effective, you can keep this going for a long time. And those champions then become the kind of embedded leaders who speak the language, have the tone, have the image that fits whatever community you're going into. And we would invest quite a lot of time and effort bolting onto those people the, the relevant cycling knowledge or content or content or supplying them with cycle trainers and educators to do what you're describing. Um, but what's really our going in point was never it's about the cycling. Our going in point was right back to the very beginning. This will get people jobs. If they have transport, they are, they're actually it's easier to get jobs. If they have mobility, they they might be healthier. Uh, and and because they're coming from, they can see the need, the, the human rights need, if you like, for their community they can kind of go, yes, that would be useful. And, and we got into that, and for four years we worked some of the groups and got absolutely extraordinary results in commitment to cycling. But the fact you could, in, you know, in, in an adjoining building, have one person using the medium of treating drug addicts, and next door you have somebody with a kind of geriatric mobility group, and they're actually using the same mechanics and the same infrastructure, the same but they're actually seeing different benefits. And that was a really, really exciting program. But we had to learn as a cycling NGO to completely shut off the kind of preaching about the cycling because it was the benefit to the community that had to lead. And if they couldn't see the benefit to the community, it didn't matter what we said in the slightest. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, in terms of you know what you said, Kevin, and and um, I totally agree with with with, with the sentiment, and uh, and that's how I've been feeling um, for quite a uh, long time. Is is how do we get not only people jobs, but how do we get uh, people trained? Uh, how do we get people informed? 
because p- part of empowerment is for them to be informed. And um, and so how do we get people in the community? I mean, and there are a lot of models out there. There's the promotoras model, which uh, the, 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 the premise of that is to sort of get someone from the community who's, who's, who's very keen on relationships and is very knowledgeable about people and knowledgeable about their families. How do we get people like that, like, a, you know, like a Maria in the community? How do we get a, a Joe from, from this neighborhood who's very well-known to sort of spark that discussion and to get them to strategically um, begin talking about ways to, you know, further empower and advocate uh, people in the community. And um, that's something for which we're, we're seeing, um, but it's such a small scale compared to the number of cyclists out there and the areas by which are being uh, worked on. And so, but that's something that we're pursuing in terms of the advocacy part. How do we um, empower uh, people? How do we educate people? Um, because the one thing, again, is that not a lot of cyclists know that there's a bike master plan. Um, and that's something that that I that I hear often. So, um, and there are there are um, ways by which we can do that uh, effectively, and and um, uh, and try and get people engaged. And, does, does, uh, does anybody who's not engaged care about a bike master plan? They care about their kids being safe. They care about having a job. They care about how they get how they get around. They care about how much money they earn. The fact that a bike master plan enables that is is that not irrelevant? Well, in terms of the the, the bigger perspective, yeah, everybody cares about um, you know safety in general. They they don't want their kid being hit on the street. Um, doesn't necessarily mean that they have to know the bike master plan, but it's a venue by which could uh, lead them to discover opportunities by which they could advocate for. Um, yeah, and for for our organization, pedestrian transit is also. Uh, a huge um, uh, issue for us in terms of how many pedestrians are being killed. And so the discussion could take many forms, but how do we get them to centralize that and uh, to look at the different options by which they can go to and advocate for at the public policy level? Um, and But but safety in general, I think it's, it's a key thing. People feel it. Yeah. People want to be more safe. People want to feel they are welcomed. Um, the community that is not just a car-centric uh, you know, society, um, and how do we uh, get them to talk about that? And many often they will say, well, I've never had anyone talk to me about that. Um, they talk about it amongst people, but it's just a conversation. It's not a sort of guided conversation by which we have a conversation and then we take the next step, and that's how we do it. And I think that's what's happening all over the city is we're having these conversations um, and there are groups uh, out there like the LA County Bike Coalition with the Ambassador Program. I think they're doing a fantastic job in terms of the model, the neighborhood model that they're taking. We have groups like the Eastside Ladders, Chess Half LA. That's that, that's already happening, and and the efforts that they're doing are are, are very well recognized. Um, and um, and so, but on a larger scale, there's there's a there's a bigger need out there um, in terms of getting more people like that. Um, but yes. Safety, uh, that's a general concern, and, and uh, how do we guide that conversation? It's what I was getting at. Because conversations could take place at coffee shops, but they don't necessarily mean they're going to go anywhere. Yeah, yeah. 
That's kind because the Dutch Revolution we all talk about, um, it must be the most formidable fighting force I think ever assembled on the planet. But you know, it's long argued that the stop the child death, stop the Kindermort in the 1970s was driven by an army of Dutch mumps who just kind of said enough is enough, and the advocacy community rode on the back of that. Um, and you know, it, it was nothing. The cycling master plans and everything else emerged on an extraordinarily simple human rights dimension, which is we've had enough. Uh, we've had enough of our children not being able to go out safely on the streets. Uh, and an extraordinary coalition emerged that, that was very clear, single issue. And, I mean, even the cyclist union didn't exist in the Netherlands in its current form until after that movement got going. Well, I hate to hate to have to cut out here, but I have to run to another meeting. Um, you know, I okay, yeah. to keep talking about this stuff. Well, this is a good, you know, I think we've done well. Yeah. I mean, we've raised issues. Yeah, it was a great conversation talking about the human rights perspective. I was actually looking forward to um, sort of hearing uh, uh, how that was being defined uh, uh, elsewhere in the the world, and I think Kevin um, really spoke about the experience and and how that really ties into what we're doing here as a necessity, um, and 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 really speaking not only on a micro level but on a macro level in terms of how that really benefits uh, businesses and and um, how do we get equity as as being part of that dialogue and how do we move that forward and. Um, yeah, and then the great work that Adonia is doing at the national level. Um, I congratulate her and the efforts that that she's undertaking. It's it's a it's a, it's a, it's a big deal, <laughs> and we look forward to uh, working together and 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 seeing how we can get some action plans uh, set up. Adonia and uh, Kevin, you wanna you wanna give us uh, like a little? I just want to say thanks once again for the invitation because it's uh, I mean I enormously enjoy this kind of international uh, transatlantic dialogue with the colleagues in the U.S. And I think, uh, I mean, it, it seems coming from old Europe where we have our success stories, but I think the energy that is emerging in the U.S. advocacy movement, in the league, uh, and in Bikes Belong and the individual city um, programs is, is really quite exciting. And, and we're genuinely not so far apart. I think you have strengths in advocacy that are ahead of much of the kind of European processes, even if you don't yet have other kind of citizens cycling on the streets. So thanks for the invitation once again to be part of the debate. Thank you, Kevin. And Adonia, do you want to? Yeah, I'll, I'll echo that. Thanks for thanks for inviting me. Um, this to me is really exciting because, uh, you know, MCM uh, was something that I was involved in during my, um, my grad student years in L.A. and now getting to be on a call with this great grassroots project that's really um, leading the way in the country and in, in how to do this kind of work, and talking to Kevin from the European Cyclist Federation on Bike Talk um, is pretty exciting, <laughs> and I just uh, posted about it on Facebook. That's so, great. You know, got to got to get that social media in there. Um, so thanks so much for having me. Thank you guys, and uh, you know, do it again. We need a topic for next month if anybody has any, and you know. You can become again if you want. <laughs> great. Sounds awesome. All right. Great. Thanks, All right. Nick. Bye, Thank everybody. Right. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Bye. All right. Bye.